Welcome to Joint Effort with Des Moines Orthopedic Surgeons. This podcast covers the pain and injuries that are associated with muscles, ligaments, and joints. All right, welcome to another episode of Joint Effort. I'm the host, Jason Sullivan, with my dad, Patrick Sullivan. This is a Father's Day edition that everyone's been waiting for. Yep. Uh, may, maybe just my mom or something, but I don't know. But, <laughs> She's uh, the only one I asked so far. Yeah. Uniquely, um, Dad, you are the senior-most orthopedic surgeon at DMOS. At one point when I came here, I was the most junior. And so uh, there are some you know, father-son combos in, in practice and business and things like that in orthopedic surgery, but uh, fairly unique um, you know, in this environment and stuff. So we kind of want to go over some of those things. And uh, I wanted to start with asking you a bunch of questions because you're, you're an expert at basically deflecting attention off yourself and onto other people. I don't know if you know this, are you aware of this? No one can ever get anything out of you. You end up starting <laughs> the conversation, questions get asked to you, and then you end up asking them about themselves, and then pe- most people like talking about That's themselves. That's because everybody I talk to is more interesting than me. That's well, right. or maybe most people are interested in talking about themselves and you. Well, you let, people don't mind that. You You're lead right. them down that path. But uh, anyways, regardless, um, not many people know your background. You grew up in Dubuque, uh, but you, you grew up, you know, a relatively modest upbringing, seven siblings in a, in a, ten people under, under one roof, and the house was, I don't know, how many square feet, 1,200 square feet maybe? Yeah, probably. Something like that. Yeah. Um, you were the oldest of, of the eight. Yeah, but that was a big house for Biafra at the time. That was a big what? <laughs> house for Biafra. House for Biafra. Biafra, foreign country. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> fair, fair enough. But you were right across the street from Dubuque Golf and Country yes. Club. And it was a pretty small house for those days. And uh, in modest upbringing, we don't, we don't, none of us really know how you became so driven to succeed. How, you know, um, what of your upbringing and your family instilled upon you, you know, the idea of, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to an Ivy League education undergrad and I'm going to strive to do medicine? Well, you, you don't wake up deciding that. You do it day by day, of course, and you get your influence from the people that you grew up with. Um, not so much your friends, but your teachers, your parents, their friends, see what they do. And you sort of put things together and say, well, what works for them, what doesn't work for them? Mm-hmm. What are they telling me that works out or they're kidding themselves? And, and you learn that way. Um, what did your dad do for a living? What did, what did Papa Rocky do? He was a uh, whole food sales person. He was a traveling salesman, so to speak. Okay. Yeah, and so he was Seeing a, what he did, did you have any desire to become a salesman? No, but then as someone reminded me, in every aspect of life, you're a salesman to one degree or another in, in anything you do. You're always talking to people. You're always um, convincing them of things. You're always listening to them and trying to understand what they want. So that's what good salespeople do, and you do that. Every, we, if we make a good interaction with our patients on a genuine basis, we're in a way doing that. Yeah, so you did take something from his Oh, yeah, he was, he was great at that. And he was a chicken salesman, more or less? Well, that was the company say. he worked for, and then he worked for the cookie company for a while, Nabisco a lot of, uh, Cookie Company. Yeah. So he had a lot of different, but he was always a, a salesman, uh, and always kind of a traveling salesman. So you took the playing football, and, and those pursuits and your academics led you to have opportunities. And I understand you potentially could have played football at where you recruited to Iowa State. Is that right? Johnny Majors was there? Yeah. Okay. 
I got offers at Iowa State and Iowa and Kansas State and Illinois and uh, so how, you get all those big Minnesota. offers in the Midwest and everyone's usually thinking you got to take one of those. So how do you end up going to an Ivy League school, even though it's Division One? It's definitely a different level. Well, yeah, it was a combination of things. I went and had a combination of sports and academics because I knew I wasn't going to make any money in football. That was going to be the <laughs> How'd you know that? Uh, you just can figure it out if you're honest with yourself. You know where you fit in and okay. you know what you're what your ranges are and yeah you know every all the kids in high school were either going to Iowa or Iowa State that was the local parochial choice and they're great schools um, and and the time of Johnny Majors he was making it a national powerhouse so that was a real attraction but then we sat down and thought about well where are you going next if you keep your next step in mind you ha always want to plan with that as you do this step you can't always but if you can it helps you and so I decided to better combination was to play football like I wanted to and also get an academic uh, education from a notable place so that the next step was easier to get into. And it turns out that's true. No one likes to hear it. And it isn't. What you can learn at an Ivy League school is not necessarily any higher um, objective information, mm -hmm. any better classes, mm -hmm. but it's kind of a club. And in that club are all the high-level people that can help you get to the next step a lot quicker. And a different region, too, right? I yeah, mean, well, it's a nice experience, something e different. East Coast, um, I remember I visited because I thought, well, yeah. if you went there, maybe I'd want to go there. And when I, I visited, I very quickly figured out that, you know, it was beautiful. But I thought, man, this is small. And if you get, you know, if you're surrounded by the people that you don't quite vibe with, it could be a different, you know. But if you get in with the right people, it could be an amazing experience. It just seemed like a... Um, uh, it seemed like an isolated place across the river where you, you know, you run into all these brilliant minds. I, part of me thought maybe I wasn't smart enough to go there. Well, that's why their I don't think that was true, but that's why their motto is a voice crying in the wilderness because it's in the middle of the wilderness. Is that really? Yeah. Their Volks, motto? Vox clamatus in deserto. Okay. A, vo a voice crying in the wilderness because that's what it is. That's what it was. So was the football uh, the level that you wanted it to be at? Or was it watered down for you or was it just right we so I've, I've heard stories about you playing football and a lot of people say you're pretty mean you'd block a guy knock him on the ground he'd get back up and push him back down you kind of had that edge I mean I think it, that was the guy's mother who said that. <laughs> I, I don't think it was actually right. true so but any in any event you know you sort of acclimate or gravitate to the level yeah. you're at and it was good enough and it was fine enough and I knew I wasn't going to the next level and did I ever think or regret not going and playing at Iowa, Iowa State? No, yeah. I didn't. So what set you apart on the football field? What made you a higher level player? It wasn't your quickness, well, I know that much. Um, partly looks. Um, <laughs> hard was to it strength? Was it tenacity? Was it... Uh, I, don't, I don't honestly know. I, I was, uh, it was probably the same thing that helped you in your career? The size and probably training at those days you know guys are formally have trainers and coaches and everything in yeah. their seventh grade they have potential back then no one even lifted weights or trained you just showed up so, so i did you outwork some people well there was, there was a training room so i used it and other people didn't okay i remember hearing the stories where you drive all the six kids or seven siblings around and on vacation you'd carry your weights in the back i don't know if those are true but the family, you know, you hear all the Well, to work stories, out on family vacation, yeah, I did that. Yeah. I wish I used them as much as I, I should have. But. So 
So, uh, funny, funny caveat is, uh, I don't know if you ever heard, when Susie and I were at Notre Dame, yeah. I was just dating her, we were in the College Football Hall of Fame, yeah. and I told her that you were in the College Football Hall yeah. of Fame, yeah. because you're an academic All-American. Yeah. Well, we were searching for Pat Sullivan, and that, <laughs> that takes you to the Auburn quarterback, I think, who's a yeah. Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah, he so Heisman. she starts screaming to 500 people, Jason's dad won the Heisman Trophy. <laughs> That's which funny. uh which is pretty funny and I told yeah, he her very, won that I told her very quickly. I let her have it for a little while because it was you know yeah. no one knew any different. A little bit of a thrill. And then she met you and she's like, I don't know. Is that, <laughs> is that the guy won the Heisman? <laughs> Anyways. So from Dartmouth, um somehow you did you know you wanted to do medical school? I think when I went to Dartmouth I thought I might and then it just seemed like an easy path to take when I was there because, you know, you get into an Ivy League school and 50% of them start as pre-med. So then from there, so did you focus on medical school as a way of getting to orthopedics or was medicine the first thing and then no, orthopedics came along medicine later? was the first thing I it thought was. was a reasonable category. It seems like um, not, not a worthwhile thing to do. Mm-hmm. It seemed like no matter where insurance went, you'd always have a job because people always needed help. and what form it got delivered or under what insurance policy it got delivered or in what city it got delivered. It didn't matter. People always need doctors. So I thought there's job security, whatever that meant. And then there was a wide diversity of what you could do. And no, I didn't choose orthopedics till later. You didn't? No. Is it true when you graduated med school, you asked mom if you could then go to law school? Is there any truth to this? Yeah. I was kind of tongue-in-cheek. She thought it was more serious than it was. But I, Were you going to try and do law school at the same time as residency, or I, you just were looking for a different intellectual pursuit? No, I, I like school. I always did well at school, and I always liked to have as much training as I could, and I thought, well, if I become have that degree, too, how many people in the country have that? That's greater security and maybe yeah. more avenues and opportunity. Um, but she said no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that kind? Probably not that. She probably wasn't that kind of guy. She probably said, you know. No, in those days she was that kind. She said, just just no. And, I mean, it was logical. It was smart. I was brainstorming and throwing out there. I wasn't really serious. Now, if she jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, yeah, I always thought you should have. I'm glad you could tell me that. Maybe. But I think I was just throwing it out there. All right. So you got. My heart wasn't broken. How's that? All right. So you did medical school at Iowa. And then uh, you were lucky enough to be one of those residents that got to stick around at a very renowned program and stay at the University of Iowa. Um, can you, I know you haven't done residency recently, but you know everyone watches these TV shows and they see, <laughs> oh my goodness, these doctors are working so many hours. Like, what, what was it truly like back then for you? Well, as you were, you're well aware of, and most people aren't, there was a change between my generation, the middle generation, and then your generation, okay. that your expectations were whatever your boss told you to do what the professor told you to do, and you worked until the job was done. Uh, for instance, when we were on trauma, our red team, that was a group of three residents took care of all the trauma, the accidents, the multiple injuries, the um, gunshot wounds, which there weren't many of at Iowa, as you well know. Uh, you took care of those things. Now, so that other people could do their elective practice and didn't have to work 120 hours a week, they gave the red team six days of call one day off a week, he did that for three months. And then it'd be days that we'd work for 48, 72 hours straight. Now you can do that when you're 25, and admittedly, your proficiency isn't as good, and it's probably correct now that they 
They limit the amount of times residents should work. That was probably a correct adjustment. Um, but it was that was kind of a grind. Did, when you do that, do you, yeah. did that callous you or set you up for some type of resiliency later on in your practice, or do you think there's really there's really no reason ever to do that? No, I think you can have the resiliency and whatever toughness you need through a different type of training. I don't think you need to do that. Okay. I don't think you do. Now, people who have done it have a little different edge to them, and they understand it. And when the, a newer generation gets a little tired after six hours, they have it, I find it hard to believe. Mm -hmm. But other than that, no, I don't think it really adds that much to your character development. As I was getting through, they just went to the 80-hour, they were going to right. the 80-hour work week. And then uh, they were also kicking around the strategic napping thing on the job if you're working too long. I hadn't heard about even, that. even our, I mean, even our group couldn't really believe it. You know, we were just kind of used to, like you said, you know, if there's work to get done, you do it. Yeah. And uh, if you get too tired, you know, it's the next man up, and they kind of come in and help out. But um, so while you're at that, Iowa, that's because your staff were trained when I was, and they didn't think they thought that was bunk, of course. They couldn't understand. Yeah, well, they had. They, if they could it's do it. It's interesting. I mean, they it. had to. They had to come around to the idea of it, though, because the regulating bodies, which would shut you down, and, no and the interesting thing is, what I think they realize is that probably the middle generation and even my generation, to some extent, you know, you, you're not going to be a whistleblower. But some of the younger generation, they don't know any better, and when they get asked an objective question and they say, "Oh, I worked more than 24 hours straight," you know, that becomes a huge no question. Thing. So. No question. Yeah, there's a fine balance there. I don't know what the right thing is. but So you were at Iowa during an exciting time. Was that during the oh, Wrestling yeah. Dynasty? Wrestling Dynasty, Hayden Fry taking them to the Rose Bowl all the time. Yeah, they had a resurgence of athletics. I think the NCAA tournaments were won by Iowa by nine straight times, only rivaled by Johnny Wooden out in uh, UCLA winning the basketball didn't, tournament. Basketball. Didn't you work out? One of your residents was a wrestler. Oh yeah, uh, buddy of yours. He's an orthopedist. And, yes. But didn't you end up working out with some of the wrestlers then, as a result of that? Oh, yeah. Residency. We did. Yeah. If you want to talk about building toughness and resilience, hang out with wrestlers. They're a different breed entirely. Um, Running the stairs in the state football stadium, and I remember you I, telling me a story about Gable. Something about your. I don't know. You're in a sauna. Yeah. Well, so. Mo was my uh, junior resident. He was an All-American wrestler. And he says, hey, you know what? We really ought to work out regularly. I says, fine. How do you want to do it? He says, well, listen, you get up at 4. Yeah, and how do you find the time? Gym. Well, we get up at 4. You work out till 6. Then you go make your rounds and do your day's work. So we did that. And we did that for a long period of time. And one summer day, you wanted to go outside. It was 95 degrees and 95% humidity, and he thought, hey, you know, let's do it easy today. We're going to run a four-mile run, go over to the stadium. We're going to run the stairs, and we're going to jog back down. We're going to do that ten times in a row. Just, just you and him? Yeah. So we did that, and it was oppressive. And we took our pulse at the top. And after the fifth one, I said, hey, Mo, my, I got to 200, and I still don't what my pulse is, so I'm going to walk back down and then run up, okay? He said, yeah, fine. So he just went and continued to do it. And one day, he's working out alone. He's in there. He's a two-hour workout just because. I mean, he's not a wrestler anymore. He's a okay. big resident. This is what they do. And he's, he's in the sauna at the end of a two-day, two-hour workout. He's in his sweats. He doesn't need to lose any water weight, but he's in his Trying sweat. to make weight for and he's, God yeah. knows what reason. Yeah, just because. And he's jumping rope, and the guide walks in, um, Gable, his old coach. He says, Mo, how you doing? Fine. 
what are you doing? He says, Coach, I just finished a tremendous workout, two hours worth. He says, great. He says, uh, why you got your eyes closed, Mo? He says, because I'm at the end and I'm trying to block out the pain. He says, Mo, you got it all wrong. You're supposed to focus on the pain. That explains wrestlers. Yeah. And Dan there's, there's In one statement, that's why they had a dynasty, probably. Oh, yeah. He expected And they were too afraid to disappoint him. Yeah. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. So that, that must have been a pretty exciting time to, fun. to go through residency, especially we probably got to work with the sports teams a little bit, I'm guessing. We took care of the football team during yeah. their run to the Rose Bowl. Did you identify a focus point in your practice? or Back then, were there uh, were things as specialized as they are now? How did you know when you were coming out? Not micro-specialized, but specialized, yeah. Okay. They were chopped into well, five or six different specialties. And I didn't know I wanted to do orthopedics until I was like a third year in medical school, and then I decided orthopedics would be good. And here's how you decided. I don't know how you decided it. The material and the type of people you take care of is one thing. But I found a bigger thing that really makes you do it is the kind of people in there. You look at it in the other orthopod and say, are they like me? Am I like them? And if you are, that's what I was attracted to. Yeah. So those are the kind of people I thought I was. And then when I'm in orthopedics, I didn't decide to do joints for sure. Most until people make fun of that type of personality, you know. Yeah. You've seen all those guys. The envious ones. Call, <laughs> calling us a bunch of bros and meatheads and carpenters or whatever. Perfect. It is, <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> it probably is true to Perfect. some degree. But no, hey, I, no argument. I agree. No so argument. You're in orthopedic residency. Did you, and I know your practice firsthand from, you know, growing up in it and then yeah. now being a partner for the last nine years with you. Um, you do a lot of joint replacement. You do a lot of sports medicine. And then yeah, I, I'm guessing 25 years ago you did a lot more general than you do now. Is that fair to say? Or Well, most of my general is dictated by trauma call because we were a level one trauma center. And back then we had five, four guys taking call. So you had a weekend every month. You had a weekday every week. And I was the young guy, so they gave me a weekday, uh, two weekdays, some weeks. So, and that was a pretty busy trauma center. And back then, you didn't have the diversity of services. There weren't general surgeons triaging people. There weren't specialists coming in and taking care of other things to find. If someone got hurt, they called the so orthopedist. You were managing everything. So each case took a lot longer to oh, figure out, sort through. Yeah, management, um, figuring well, out uh, specialty issues, getting consults if you need, or taking care of things that were a little bit outside your. What was an ACL reconstruction like when you first started in practice? Was that an inpatient case still? He, at the University of Iowa, it yeah. was when I got here. Shortly thereafter, it was get, becoming outpatient. Okay. And yes, but at Iowa, I mean, was it true you'd stay a couple days in the hospital and yeah, you'd be sometimes yeah. casted or you know non weight bearing things like that. Yep, yep. And that evolved very quickly. That was in uh, I don't know what was it the 80, 81 to eighty six. That okay. evolved quickly to more where you're doing it, but still not to your level until twenty years later. Mm -hmm. later. What, what's the biggest evolution that you've seen in, throughout your entire career in orthopedics that kind of, if you go back on it, blows your mind or you never would have seen coming? Well, when I first started here doing total joints, we would admit the patient two days ahead of time for a medical workup, and they'd stay in the hospital. We would do the surgery, and they'd stay two weeks post-operatively. Why? Rehab. Did they need it? Or was well, it, it turns out that we learned things that, no, if we did things differently, some of the things we could have done then, thumbs we can't with modern uh, developments we could do. Uh, but we kept them there to rehab, make sure they're doing okay. Now, early on, you have to understand there were 
more kind of side effects and complications before you get everything perfected. There was a few more dislocations because remember we were doing a 22 millimeter ball. You're talking inherently hips, unstable. Hip dislocations. Hip, hip dislocations. Okay. And we were wanting to watch the wounds until the, we were sure they healed. We wanted to rehab them under our direction, make sure they're on the right track. And all this was good, but in today's world, in terms of efficiency and cost savings, um, so how anymore. many hips could you do in a day? One or two back then? I mean, were those four-hour cases? When I came out there, they had introduced power a few days, years earlier, and my first uh, what you, partner... What do you mean by power? Power instruments. When I, my first, uh, Dr. Johnson was one of the original joint... Uh, previously, it was hand-reaming, or what was it? They did hand-reaming. Unbelievable. And then that was a lot of work, so you didn't do very many. But in, in the beginning, even with power, we'd only do three or four a day. Okay. And those were a couple hour cases, typically? Yeah, we'd be, a, we could be doing them in an hour and a half, but the turnover is much longer. Gotcha. Okay. You know what turnover is, of course. So that's amazing. So not only like the patient care aspect, but the, you know, the implants we're using, have we made the leap that you thought we'd make in, in 30 years of practice? I mean, are you happy with where things are headed? Do you think we've reached a plateau or are we constantly pushing the envelope and evolving? Is there something big coming? I think we're pushing to try to evolve, but as you well know, when you have a procedure that's about 98% successful and the duration is about 90% in the last 20 years, it's hard to improve on those margins and you need huge numbers of new procedures to prove it's better, so it's harder to find that. The other thing is, I, I said to Dr. Dick Johnson one time because he was one of the pioneers and innovators and they worked, everybody worked for years, 40 years of and they threw billions of dollars every year at improving everything. And I said to him one day, I said, because we sort of took a roundabout route, we, we went through totally cemented, we went through hybrid, we went through cementless, then we went through wear characteristics, and then we went through ball head and ball sizes and hips. And, and then sometimes we learned a lesson, we went back to what we were doing, I says to him, Dr. Johnson, do you ever, did you ever think that you spent 35 years or something Collectively billions of dollars, and we only be these many steps forward. He says, "Yeah, but unless you did it, you wouldn't have been right. that many steps forward, and you needed that because that improves." It's it almost people. like small steps of trial and error. Yeah, you it can see argue. Study it, then you you move forward. A lot of times, by the time you know how this thing performed, you're already on to the next thing. That's the weird thing to me. You know, the prosthesis me used too. doesn't have a longevity. Doesn't have a really long you know, trial, but we think it's better because of X, Y, and Z, but then we don't have the studies until we moved on to the next thing. It's kind of a weird... Well, it's like they say, it's no thing, n nothing worse than ruining your results than long-term follow-up. Yeah. And if you're starting a new, two, new, two or three new things before you have enough data on the first or second one, you're in the midst of three trials and you don't know which way is right. Did uh, some of your studies take you abroad when you were... Yeah, I did a traveling fellowship with Dr. Dick Johnson and he provided Where that was for that? me. Where'd I go to? Yeah. Well, I traveled in this country. I went to New York and Los Angeles and to Phoenix, Arizona. And I went to uh, London, um, uh, Brussels. Now, abroad, I want to know, why is it that there seems to be, you know, everyone thinks, you know, outside of the U.S. places are ahead of us in terms of healthcare, or like they're doing more advanced things that we're a little more sheepish to try because we don't have the evidence yet. Did you find that to be true then as well? There are a few on the cutting cusps of things. I'll tell you why I think that's true in a minute. But at one place I went to in, um, in Belgium, they were, and a guy had been at Iowa for a little bit, so that was our connection. He would take a plastic casting of the inside of the femur 
send it out to an, a truck where there are engineers out there that chiseled a perfect titanium stem to match that. Mm. Bring it back in, flash sterilize it, and we didn't plant that. Yes, that would take a little while. before 3D yeah, printing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, re reverse. And the reason I'll tell you that I think we're, Europe will look a little ahead of us sometimes, and they do things a little earlier, is it's just like, you know, AO came from Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And those guys in their talks one time said, um, uh, the reason they do better, and he'd flash up on the screen, a motorcycle guy, he says, because in Europe, this is our experimental animal, meaning they jump to humans a lot quicker than we do. Got it. Okay. And that, you know, f we, we probably actually benefit from them doing that. We, we do in a small degree. A lot of times, things get FDA approved based upon their studies. Well, for know. instance, uh, stem cells in the purest form. They can do it in Europe, and FDA hasn't, hasn't allowed us to yep. do it. Yep. True. No, no, very true. So, uh, you know, where do you... Would you, you never, when I was growing up, you never said, hey, you need to do orthopedics. Everyone thinks like, you know, I, I think I just am not that, that creative and I just saw a pretty good career and uh, an interesting, you know, uh, I thought it would keep me, you know, intellectually stimulated. You always said, hey, you can stay in town, you don't have to travel. And that was kind of interesting to me because I'm like, I don't want to get on an airplane and leave the family all the time. So it was like a, you know, a, a stable job. There would always be something to do. Um, but do you ever remember telling me to go on orthopedics? Because I personally do not. And everyone thinks that, you know, you made your dad so proud you did what he did. And I'm like, I don't really think you honestly care. Well, I don't care. I, I'm, I'm very, it's very interesting in that you make the independent choice and you're happy with it like I was. I'm happy and proud of you for that. But no, I, I think everyone has to find their own way to what they want to do because otherwise they'll always be thinking, is this what I want to do? And if, any, if they think that someone else made them do it, there's always that worry that they may rethink it. Yeah. Or they may blame the person. Or they may say, well, you wanted me to do that. And that doesn't make sense. No, I think that's right. Um, it's, it's always interesting because I think everyone thinks that our youngest brother, Patrick, who went into kind of more business aspect, you know, you, uh, you've always, you always have intellectual pursuits outside of medicine. And so Nick and I always joke because you like talking to Pat a little bit more because he's in a different field. You know, the medical field is kind of, to you, you know it you know it too well by now. But we have gotten in trouble a few times, you know, around the dinner table talking about orthopedics too much. So maybe we are kind of like the stereotype bros that like to talk about these things. But um, you got to be careful that you have outside interests. Yeah, right. yeah, no doubt about it. I would say coming to town, it was very fun doing some combo cases with you. I'm not sure many people get to do that with their dad, but we've done a couple cases together where they're, you know, some of the things you do and I do were unique and they matched up in the same case. Uh, hopefully we can get to do a few of those in the next few years too. But um, um, Yeah, I, more than I thought we might, and it's been a pleasure to do it. Um, Sometimes two skilled hands, you know, is uh, like a lot of the things I do, I'll do with other partners where you can have two people working at the same time, you save anesthesia time, you expertise. Uh, uh, but no, that, that to me was, was actually a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, question for you, would you encourage any one of my kids to do orthopedics? 
You mean if someone said, hey, go talk to your grandchildren and tell them what you think yeah. they should do? What should they I don't do? think I'd ever go out of my way to do it. If someone said, would you please go do it? Yes, I would please go do it. And would I tell anyone to do it? Would you do? encourage someone no, here's what I tell them. Here's what I tell them to do. Find out what you're good at. Try a whole bunch of things. See where your natural interests, skills, and intellect um, range is. And then find a career in that sphere that allows you independence and to be s sort of self-employed. Uh, so you have more control of your world and your time, and that way you'll feel less trapped, and you'll be m and you'll be more creative and enjoy what you do. That's what I tell them. I think you probably explained that to me elegantly like you just did, and I probably tuned you out back in the day and just made the brain-dead decision just to follow your course. But either way. So uh, what, do you, what do you think of it after nine years? Oh, it's great. I, I, I don't know. I, I love it. What I do you think, like uh, about it? Um, I like the efficiency part of orthopedics. I like the fact that you can um, you can continue to hone your skills. Um, I like the fact that there's constantly new procedures that you can do, and there's de like 20 different ways to do the same thing and achieve the same goal. And sometimes doing it a different way is more advantageous for whatever reason it may be. Um, I like the advances in arthroscopy that are a lot of fun where, you know, I'm kind of the video game generation. You're, you know, you're, you're looking on the camera and you're fixing things through the scope. That's a lot of fun. Um, more, more than anything, it's just kind of fun when the best clinics are like the happy, like last follow-ups with patients, you know, when they're like three months out from something and they're like, all they're here to do is tell you thank you. And they're, they're you know, that, that is, that's awesome. Um, and I don't know that many people get that, you know, no. even... You know, a lot of doctors get that from their patients, but sometimes their relationship with the patient is a journey. Ours, ours can almost be seen to a completion where they're yeah. back to their normal self or whatever they thought they wanted to be, and, and then they, they no longer need you anymore. So I share many of your same reasons. Here's what I liked about orthopedics. thought I would, and it turns out to be true. You get to take care of all ranges of ages if mm -hmm. you want to. You, get take, you take care of all genders ethnic groups, you're not pigeonholed, you yeah. see all kinds well, of people. Well, it's a smattering of society. Yeah, you see interesting people. And I, I think a word to describe it is transactional. They come to you with a problem to figure out, and you figure out a solution, and then you can put an end chapter to that and close the book, and they're satisfied, and it seems complete mm -hmm. and neat, and put yeah. it on the shelf. Yeah, no, I agree. I even like when a patient comes to me and they've done all the research and they know exactly how they want something done, I, that used to irritate me. And then I started thinking, if I know how to do something three or four different ways and this is the way they want it done and I think it's equal, like why not give them what they want? So we're almost a little bit of a concierge business to some degree in the elective world, you it, know. Just uh, like anywhere else in the world, the salesman thing yeah. I told you about, no. it's hard to go wrong giving people what they want as long as we, from our medical standpoint, know it's correct and okay to do. All right, last question for you. Are you ever going to go back to school again? Well, I, got, I have an application into engineering school. No. Uh, <laughs> MBA, what would you do? MBA, law school, what would you learn? I would have to have an end point, and I can't understand. I've done this for long enough. What other thing can I do that was of significant contribution? I don't think well, there's much left like to do. you said you like going to school, though. Well, I do like going to school, but I like an end point. What am I going to do with them? First, first time I First time. I mean, I could see going to adult courses and learning some new subject that had no practical application to the world. Yeah because I don't need that anymore. I could just enjoy knowledge for knowledge's sake. 
Yeah, you read some dense books. <laughs> uh, the la last story I got about your dad is when uh, I brought Susie, I was dating her for a year or so out of college, and she was asking you what book you were reading, and you were reading The Iliad at the time. <laughs> she's like, I'm reading that for my, my class at Notre Dame, and she's like, this is awful. Like, your dad reads this stuff for leisure. I said, I don't know. He's a little different. You know, he just likes to, he likes, I I he has a thirst for knowledge. I so. didn't remember that. Anyways, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me on your podcast.